0: Well, Doug began a sermon series called uh, The Journey to Jerusalem last Sunday. And this message series, what we're going to be doing is going with Jesus, kind of through some of his encounters as he was making his way to the cross and then also to the resurrection. And in the midst of these encounters, what we hope to do is discover who Jesus is and what he's about and to learn more about what God is up to as well. But beyond that, to learn who we are uh, in light of God and to learn who, how we can seek interaction with Christ and, and what God's purposes are for our life today, uh, many years after this has happened, and to know what Christ is doing in and amidst, in amongst our midst, but then also to discover uh, how we can connect with God through all of this. And so uh, last week, Doug began with this message about the woman that Jesus encounters at the Pharisee's house. And we learned last week that all of us are in need of God's mercy, that literally all of us Uh, have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God and that not one of us is good enough. Uh, And so in in that way, we all need God's mercy. And today we encounter Christ at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And we're going to see what God has for us out of this passage today. So as I begin this morning, I want to ask a question. It's a very simple question. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you really believe in Jesus? That to me is the question That's coming out of this passage this morning. What does it mean for you to believe in Jesus? And as abstract of a question as that is, it's probably easy enough for us to answer. Most of us probably would say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. Uh, I believe that 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 because of all the evidence of all the miracles that he performed. I also believe that he uh, died and was raised from the dead. And, And the evidence of the resurrection seems to be compelling. And so, yeah, I believe. In, in Jesus as being God's Son. Well, the disciples also believed in Jesus. Peter earlier had spoken on behalf of probably most of the disciples when he confessed that he believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. But, but how far did their belief go in him? Well, let's take a look in this story of where they were at in their progression of faith or belief in Christ. When Jesus had heard about Lazarus, his friend, becoming sick, he wasn't worried in fact, he knew that what the outcome would be, and so uh, we're told that he waits two more days before responding and, and going to check on Lazarus. And then he finally tells the disciples, we're going to go to Bethany to see about Lazarus. And his disciples responded with some fear, because they knew that the last time that Jesus had been in Judea, in that area of Bethany in Jerusalem, that literally the Jewish leaders had tried to have him stoned, and so they knew that, in, in a sense, there, there was a there people were on the lookout for Jesus, that, that trouble was waiting for him uh, in that area, and so they were kind of fearful. So they say, hey, hang on, Jesus. It doesn't seem to be very safe at this moment. Are you sure what you know what you're doing if we go back to Bethany? So how far did their belief in him go? Did they believe that, that Jesus would keep them safe? Did they believe that he would keep himself safe? Well, it seems to be that they're questioning uh, his attitude and, and what he would do for them. And so... Um, in fact, when Jesus tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep, they're kind of relieved because they think that that's a natural sleep and, and that probably then Lazarus is going to get, become okay, and so they don't really have to go uh, to Bethany, and so they're relieved because they're concerned not only for Jesus' life, but for their life too. But then Jesus has to explain to them says, well, no, not just a natural sleep, but sleep that leads to death. And so literally Lazarus has died. And then what he says to the disciples after he tells them that Lazarus died is a little bit strange. He says, and for your sake, I'm, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So how could anyone be glad that a friend would die? What about the pain that Mary and Martha were going through at that moment? Doesn't Jesus care about them as well? Or is it all that he cares about is trying to make a point to the disciples in this story? Well, it becomes quite clear when we look at the story that Jesus really did care about what was going on uh, with Lazarus, and we're fa- in fact, we're told that he's moved uh, to great emotion and he's moved to tears even. But he sees the sadness as well of those who are mourning Lazarus. But it's still, he knows that there's more at issue here than their sadness. And he knows what the outcome will be. He's already said that this illness is not going to lead to death. Rather, it would have a twofold purpose, and that would be that God would be glorified and that the disciples and Mary and Martha's faith would also be increased. And that was what made made Jesus happy about what was going to happen. And in the midst of this story, I think we learn that God is going to act in his time uh, to deepen our faith. You see, the disciples' belief in Jesus still needed to grow and to be deepened. Even though they had spent all this time living with Jesus, they'd hung out with him, they still didn't know fully who he was and what he was about and what he was capable of doing in his power. And when it came to crunch time, their faith still wasn't strong enough to sustain them. In fact, this is such an important thing that Jesus delayed his departure uh, so that by the time they arrive in Bethany that Lazarus has been dead for four days. That is, he's really, really, really dead. In the Jewish uh, belief at the time, they would actually allow people to go into the tomb and check on the body for up to three days after the person had died for the, the possibility that the person could be revived. But after the third day, the Jewish faith was like, you know what, this person's really dead. There is no reviving of this person. And so they would finally seal the tomb, and that was it. And so when Jesus shows up on the fourth day, that's fairly important. Now, imagine if you were Mary or Martha at that moment, and you've sent a a message to Jesus for him to come quick because Lazarus is sick, and then you wait, and you wait, and then nothing's happening in that moment. What would you be thinking? Would you be wondering if if Jesus really cared? Uh, Would you begin to doubt whether Jesus was uh, delaying, maybe because the situation was too hot, he was afraid to come with his disciples? You know, they could have been forgiven for thinking any of those thoughts, couldn't they? But have, have you ever wondered why it takes God so long to answer your prayers sometimes? Perhaps there are things that you've been praying about for weeks and weeks, maybe months and months, maybe some of you even years and years, and yet God seems to delay his response to you. What is What, what does that do to your faith when you don't seem to see God at work in your midst? Do you start to doubt him? Uh, do you start to ask whether this question, this prayer is really... Uh, beyond God, or whether you're asking the the wrong thing, or maybe you begin to think that your prayer is a waste of time, that in the end it's just wishful thinking. But it also might be true that God is waiting for something else to happen. Maybe he's waiting for the time to be right. Maybe he's waiting for attitudes to change. Maybe waiting for an opportunity to act that will further the gospel. Maybe he's waiting that uh, something will happen that will bring greater glory to him and to the message that he has. You see, God's delays aren't always signs of failure. In fact, when you think about the story of the Bible, there's this theme of God's plan being delayed, and it runs all the way through Scripture. In fact, when you get home today, I invite you to take out your Bible and open it up to Hebrews chapter 11 and read about the great people of faith and, and how they were waiting for God to fulfill his plan, but none of them saw it in their lifetime. And now even we've been able to see God's plan and we've been able to look back in history, see, God, see Jesus' life and his sacrifice and his resurrection, uh, unlike those of the great faith of the Old Testament. And yet we too are still waiting. We're waiting for the return of Christ, aren't we? We're waiting for God to make everything new, everything redeemed, everything right, for him to bring about the final redemption of the world. 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about this starting in verse 8. This is what the scriptures say. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. But it's hard It's hard to wait, isn't it? To wait for God to act when our world seems to be disintegrating all around us or a situation seems to be really, really tough and when the things we long for for God to fix don't seem to get fixed in our timing and when evil seems to triumph in our circumstances. It's at those moments that I think we need to have a long view instead of a short view. We need to have an eternal view of what God's doing, and yet that's hard for us to be able to look at God in the circumstances in those ways. And we, in those moments, we need to remember the promises of God to be with us. And we, we, we need to remember to look forward to the good things that God has promised, the things that he's preparing in our future. And we need to continue to walk in God's light, trusting that he's going to make our feet secure in every circumstance. I think also in this passage we see that Jesus asks his disciples to have a radical faith in his power, Literally a power that he says is to resurrect the dead and to bring life to any situation. As we move on in the story, Jesus and the disciples come to Bethany. And we see, I think, a remarkable level of belief on the part of Martha. Even, even yet, even a faith that needs to be strengthened and yet applied to her current situation. And I think a new and a radical way. Martha goes out and she goes out to meet Jesus and expresses her belief in his ability to heal. She says... If you had been here, then my brother would not be dead. But I know now, she says, I know now that even God will give you whatever you ask him. And it's not clear what she's asking him to do because later on in the passage in verse 24 and then verse 39, she objects to Jesus suggesting that they open up the tomb. So she really doesn't understand who stands before her and the power that is in Jesus, God's son. Perhaps she doesn't know what she's asking for. Maybe uh, it's just the plea of somebody who's lost literally all all of her hope. But all hope's not lost in the situation. Jesus assures her that Lazarus will rise again. And and Martha seems to understand about the resurrection from the dead. You see, the Jewish people at that time, they believed that God was going to raise all of the Jewish believers at the end of the world back to life. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. And that doesn't ease her current pain, Uh, so Jesus says it another way. He says in verse 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they will die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Here is a general statement about what he's going to apply in the specific in just a few minutes in front of their own vision. He says, but yet only, if only you believe. He says, do you believe this? To Martha, what a question. Do you believe this? In some ways, it sounds almost uh, too simplistic. Do you believe I can, even, even if I didn't come in time to heal your brother, do you believe I can? Do you believe I can, even if your brother has been dead for four days? Do you believe I can turn your mourning into joy? Martha, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? I think believe is kind of an odd word. I mean, it's a little bit abstract. It's it's unseen. It, It seems a little bit actionless. And yet it's the key to seeing life and death. It's also the key to seeing light and darkness, seeing hope and despair, experiencing joy and sorrow. And the key to unlock all of these things is faith. It's faith in who Jesus is and what he can do. And to be fair, Martha did have faith to a certain extent, right? I mean, when Jesus, again, when he was at the edge of town, she heard of his arrival. She went out to meet him, and she said the first words out of her mouth were, If you'd been here, Lord, my brother, he wouldn't have died. That's faith. She had faith in Jesus' ability to heal Lazarus. And again, the fact that Lazarus died so quickly meant he was really, really critically sick. And yet she believed that Jesus could have healed him. But he was late, and she didn't expect him to be late. And Lazarus had been a good friend of Jesus, and he shouldn't have been so late. And we can easily identify with her. We, too, have faith in God, but some things just don't work out. They don't happen in the way that we expect it. Uh, there are times when I question the wisdom of God and of his ways. Uh, when, you know, why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you act earlier? Sometimes it can feel like God has really let us down. God doesn't always respond in the way we expect him to respond. We we often, it's a signal that sometimes we're too caught up in our own way, in our own time, and we don't understand God's timing. Uh, And I think such expectation causes us to misread God's good intention. But then also in verse 27, we see Martha saying, Yes, Lord, in response to his question, she says, Yes, I believe. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. That was quite a statement of faith. I mean, there were a lot of her peers that could not or would not say the same thing about Jesus. And yet, Martha's saying, Hey, I believe that you're the Son of God. That was quite a statement of faith. Yet, that wasn't really what, that wasn't the full extent to what Jesus wanted her to believe. I mean, the devil, we're told in in the Bible, believes that of Jesus. Jesus also wanted her to believe that he is the resurrection and the life. And And with him, even something as hopeless as her situation with her brother could be changed. Can she really believe that Jesus could do something about her brother who's now been dead for four days? And again, today I think we're a lot like Martha. We believe Jesus is God. He's alive and he's with us today. But that isn't really all that we need to believe. Jesus also wants us to believe and trust that he can do something to our situation. I think we all understand that. Right? I mean, it's one thing to know that Jesus is God. It's quite another thing to trust him through a really challenging circumstance when it really gets tough. Can we believe that he's going to make a way when there seems to be no way? Can we believe that he's going to work wonders and bring hope in a hopeless situation? To know in our mind, again, is one thing. But to know in our heart with a deep conviction under really harsh circumstances is quite another thing altogether. God wants us to trust him in the thick of things, not just in the easygoing times of life. And we pray that God will continue to strengthen our faith and strengthen us in that way. And I, and I believe that God wants to develop in us what I would describe as a tough faith, a faith that endures even in the midst of some extremely uh, challenging circumstances. I think also as we see in this passage that we worship and we serve a God who is deeply moved by our troubles. I mean, I, I really connect with Christ when, when he's showing his emotions in this story. Uh, we look in verse 33, and it says, When Jesus saw her weeping, uh, and, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. I mean, we worship, we serve a God who's not distant and who's uncaring. We worship and serve a God who is close and who empathizes with all the things that we're going through, who cares deeply for us. And when we see that Jesus was deeply moved and and we see the death of Lazarus and we see the scene of the gut-wrenching mourning that's going on before him, we also hear in the scripture that Jesus wept. We understand how deeply Jesus felt loss, the loss of his friend, the loss that's before him with these people that are in front of him, and he empathized with them. And that's definitely true of this, that he was deeply moved in this way. But if that's all we understand about this phrase, then I think we miss the fullness of what God's trying to describe here. The meaning, the real meaning of deeply moved in the original classic uh, Greek language, this word was used to describe the snort of a horse who was going into battle. And the Greeks would often translate this word for humans in this way. They would describe outrage and fury and anger. So there's a level of compassion that's going on with Christ as he's deeply moved. But there's also this description of him being angry, furious, upset at what he sees and what's going on. And so what was he angry at? Who was he angry at? I I certainly don't believe it was Mary or Martha or the mourners that had gathered around to mourn. Rather, I think he's overcome by the futility of the sorrowful scene that's before him in light of what he had just said. He had just said, I am the resurrection and the life. God's people should possess the knowledge of life. They should possess a, a faith that claims victory at the grave, but here these people stand overcome by this defeat of death. And then he's feeling the sense of here stands the one that God has sent, the one in whom victory and life and resurrection is present in their powerful realities. And Jesus is angry at death itself and the sin that humans had committed that led to death. Jesus recognizes for for thousands of years, human beings, because of their sin, had turned their back on God. And and death had been the result, the separation that humans had experienced uh, in the power of death as a result of that. And Jesus is angry at this and the devastation that it brings. And his only interest, I think, at this point is to locate the tomb and to begin to demonstrate the divine power over humanity that God had given him. And it's at the tomb that we see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so we come to the tomb and we're told in another phrase, once again, once more he's deeply moved. It's the same phrase. It's the same word. He's upset. He's angry. He's ticked off. He said, okay, this is it. Death has had its, its day for way too long, and this is the final moment for death. I'm going to change this thing is basically what he's saying. The Lord of life is now directly confronting the opponent of death that's symbolized in the grave tomb of his friend Lazarus. And Jesus orders the stone to be rolled away, and it's much to the distress of Martha. She complains. She's, she's worried. She can't imagine what's really going to happen. And so what she thinks is going to happen is they're going to roll the stone away, and she's going to me- smell the stench of the, the uh, decay of her brother's body. And that's more than she feels like she can bear at this moment. And so she's afraid, but we're told that somebody removes the stone. We don't know if that person has faith enough to do that or if they're just respectful enough of the rabbi to go ahead and do what he has to do, but somebody moves the, t- the stone away. And then Jesus reminds them of their need to believe. And then he says a prayer out loud so they all can hear it. So they'll believe that it's God who sent him, and it's God by whose power he's about to do this incredible thing in front of them. And then it's done. Jesus calls to Lazarus in a loud voice to come out. It's not a whisper. It's not even a firm command. It's a shout of raw authority. Lazarus, come out! And I believe that part of that is because not only was he waking Lazarus from the dead, but he's also telling death, it's time to let go. Your day has come. Your day is over. Let go. Because before you stands the resurrection and the life. And so he shouts out, and Lazarus, we're told, comes forth. He's wrapped in burial cloths, but he's alive and he's well. And he's stumbling out of the grave. And and Lazarus coming out of the grave certainly must have been a spectacle before this crowd. I mean, can you imagine being there that day with all those people? What would your response have been in that moment? I mean, would you have run up to your friend or your family member, Lazarus? Would you have given a big hug of joy, so excited to see that he's alive, he's not dead? Or would you have shrunk back from Jesus, maybe out of awe and maybe even out of fear, because you're you're asking the question, who is this man that stands before me that can command life to come out of the grave? And if he can do that with Lazarus, if he can command death to let go of Lazarus, what can he tell me? What can he do to me? Or would you have gotten immediately down on your hands and your knees, and would you have worshipped him? And, and basically been asking the question, is he really the son of God? Is he who he says he is? We don't know how we would have responded. But we know that the, for, certainly for this crowd, there must have been some sense of, of awe or shock in terms of what he had done. They had been stunned by what Jesus had done in their presence And Jesus wasn't just present to them at the grave 2,000 years ago, but we're told that Jesus is present to us today. Jesus is present to those who believe in him. And Jesus comes to us in a present tense, in a present way to address a present need in our lives. He can bring life to the dead. He did it right there and then at the grave. He can bring hope in a hopeless situation. He did it at Lazarus' grave. He can bring joy and turn it. In. He can bring joy to those who are mourning. He is and he will always be the I am, in our situation. All of the power to resurrect, to bring life uh, from the dead, to transform and to make new is in the presence of Christ. Jesus' last words to his disciples was, "All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples." He's saying, all the authority and power that God gave to me to be the resurrection and the life, I am now commanding you and giving you the same authority to go and do the work of God. And so what's our response? Do we believe? Do we believe he's the resurrection and the life? What more do we need? Jesus says, again, I am the resurrection and the life. And there's only one condition to receiving this promise. Believe. Believe he's the one who gives life to what you think might be dead. Believe he's the one who brings hope to what you see as a possibly hopeless situation. Believe that he's the one who gives eternal life so that you and I will never die. Jesus is here present today saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe He wants to know today, just as he did back when Lazarus was in the tomb, do you believe? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this story that comes to us from Scripture, this testimony uh, that so many had witnessed Jesus bringing Lazarus out out of the dead, out of the grave. God, we thank you that Jesus promises us that he is with us wherever we go for those who believe and trust in him. And that his power and his authority is present to us today, just as it was to Lazarus so many years ago. God, help to expand our faith, help to deepen our faith, that we too can believe, that we can trust that Jesus is the resurrection, that Jesus is the life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.